Thank you for choosing Talks News, your only source to the sources you may find or may not find very resourceful. I am your host, a leftist made out of straw, streaming to the masses, <clears throat> clearing my throat. Uh, today's date is April 26, 2021, let the record show, and we begin with the Pledge of Allegiance. That being, I pledge allegiance to liberty and justice for all. Thank you for joining me. Uh, kind of the regular podcast today in that uh, I don't have a Militia Watch update. Not that they're... Uh, I didn't cover last week's, so that will have to be updated in the following episode. When this week's update comes out, I will do both. Do both of the updates. Um, this one's going to be a quick episode, mainly just kind of going over a bit of abstractions, nothing too concrete. We're talking about ideas in the marketplace of ideas with two segments coming from Dennis Prager's PragerU, uh, Prager University being, you know, a little short bite conservative consumable uh, information, whether it be misleading or not. Uh, we'll, you should be the judge of that, and we shall judge it as we go through these couple of segments that I've got here, one from this week and another from the previous week. And then we have uh, Ted Cruz joining Fox News uh, to talk about how the Democrats' agenda is power forever, as if the entire establishment isn't concerned with a new ruling government or any alternatives to what we currently have. Conservatives aren't worried about that at all, are they? Um, Which is funny because, you know, President Trump, when asked about uh, after Xi Jinping in China uh, being asked, you know, what do you think of him becoming the indefinite ruler of the Communist Party in China? And he said that it was a good idea and that maybe we should look into that uh, here in the United States. So when we're talking about who and who, you know, who's looking for power forever, let's not be blinded by partisan politics and think that one side is more guilty than the other. That's probably the biggest mistake we can have when participating in this representative democracy. All right, freshness. So we begin now with this PragerU video to let's jog the ball. Let's what? Get the ball Communist rolling. China is the biggest challenge America faces on the world stage. I guess I should have given a bit of an introduction to this. <laughs> um, this video is called China, Friend or Foe. And of course, it has uh, PragerU's own Chinese expert, Nikki Haley, former UN ambassador. Um, she has done multiple videos uh, in regards to China because she seems to be the only person who would have much knowledge of them at all, um, mainly just since she had to interact with them in the UN. So um, Nikki Haley is their go-to eyes on China. So we're going to be going into that. It's a challenge that we ignored for far too long. For decades, United States leaders in both parties encouraged- It's a challenge we have ignored for far too long. Like, can you see how much the United States hinges on the idea of being the world's superpower when we've let China collect too much power for too long and then it becomes a concern of ours being knocked away from being the world's largest and most powerful superpower? Um, I think it's pretty funny. Like, you know, like, like Ted Cruz is going to tell us how the Democrats agenda is power forever. And then the United States feels threatened in its economic position on a geopolitical world stage. And they're like, oh, man, China's coming for our power. I thought it was forever. You know, it's, it's pretty funny. Eyes with China. The idea was that China would move away from communism and embrace freedom and democracy. Wait, what? what? Well, hold up. Hold up. Let me rewind it. I missed her point. That's my fault. I was 
too busy talking. Leaders in both parties encouraged deep ties with China. The idea was that China would move away from communism and embrace freedom and democracy. This idea was wrong. The Chinese Communist Party is now more oppressive at home and aggressive abroad than ever before. It uses every tool at its disposal to... I mean, it's very funny because, you know, them, you know, having a foothold abroad is what we normally call imperialism. Um, the United States has been a so-called democracy in capitalism, you know, everything that we hold to be opposite of communist China. And we're incredibly imperialist, like we've imperialized the entire South America to our whim. And, you know, we have many uh, bases and operations going around going on around, you know, Eastern Asia, Middle East. You know, we've got some bases even in the, the, the whole United Nations of Europe, you know, the whole European Union. Um, we have bases out in Africa. You know, imperialism and democracy don't really seem to not go together, especially when you have the limited amount of democracies that both the United States and even China, who does also have elections, uh, we both have very limited democracies. If we had more expansive democracies, I would doubt that imperialism would be on the first priority of a lot of Americans. Strengthen itself while weakening America. Let's start with trade. Trade is a fundamental and fundamentally beneficial part of our economy, but not all trade with all trading partners is the same. The father of capitalism, Adam Smith, observed in The Wealth of Nations that Great Britain's command of the seas must trump trade benefits. Defense, he wrote, is of much more importance than opulence. America has long understood this truth. During the Cold War, we limited trade with the Soviet Union. We didn't want the communist country to use our innovation and economy against us and our allies. Now it's time to take a similar approach with China. Just like outright saying, hey, we should uh, go into another Cold War with another nuclear power. You know, hot take, guys. We should uh, antagonize and vilify the Chinese government and um, we should uh, stop interacting with them, even though most of our manufacturing is done over in China at this point. Oh, man. What I find fascinating, too, is that they're also moving uh, manufacturing like some corporations are moving them into India. And India is also a dictatorship. So, <laughs> like, you know, it's a give or take either way, you know. For anyone who might have doubted the need for this, the coronavirus pandemic has provided a very loud wake-up call. As Americans rushed to purchase medical equipment, masks and gloves, it became obvious we had outsourced a lot of what we needed to China. We had become dependent on them for not only PP. What do you mean like during the pandemic we realized this? Like it's been common knowledge that a majority of our manufacturing and a lot of our goods come from China. Like that's uh that's been common knowledge for decades. So long as I've been alive in America, I have seen made in China on many things that I have either purchased in my life or have been given as a gift. Um and one thing included was not even that recent was uh Trump's MAGA hats. Yes, indeed, those were made in China. Trump has a line, and this is only one example. I'm not sure if there's more, but he had a line of, like, ties, Trump ties. And those two, guess where they were made? You guessed it, China. 
Um, it's been something that we've built over decades. So um, this is pretty uh, ridiculous to think that we just recognized during the pandemic and then we were like, oh, we got to stop doing so much with China. It, it, it's almost like it didn't have any equivalency to what Trump was doing at the time, which was vilifying and demonizing Chinese people and the government by calling it the Kung flu and a virus that came from China. It never should have happened. They never should have let it out as if pandemics aren't natural things that happen with our society since we began the agricultural revolution. So um, it's th these realizations that seem to have come upon uh, conservatives based on this video just means to me that you're not really paying attention. Or at least Nikki Haley is also assuming you two are not paying attention because she would have known that well beyond the coronavirus pandemic if she had the level of security clearance that I assume that she has being a former UN ambassador. But many of our everyday medicines Making America dependent on China for critical supplies didn't happen by accident. It's part of a strategic plan. China's communist rulers have manipulated supply chains to China's advantage. Oh, yeah, they've manipulated them. It's not that businesses actually saw uh, monetary incentives to move manufacturing jobs into uh, China. They didn't see that. They also didn't see the investments that were possible after they had restricted or lifted the restrictions on foreign investment. Yeah, none of that has to do with that. That was all manipulation. Every corporation in the United States just fell under some mystical spell of China that just made them give up their power and will and investments into their country. It's all a part of their take over the world plan. Often illegally to give it an edge over America and- Nice, I like how she says often illegally to mark it on there that it has nothing to do with how capitalism just works overall. Like as if the capitalist system and our trade isn't globalized. That's dumb and um, you are awarded no points, Nikki Haley, and everyone who heard you say this is now dumber for it. In the free world, it wasn't supposed to go this way. As it gathered economic strength, China became less free and more aggressive. Now we face an expansionist communist China whose economic power vastly exceeds anything the Soviets could ever muster. China is using its growing economic clout to advance- See, and that's great fear-mongering. It does have a kernel of truth because the economic climb that China's going through is pretty revolutionary, um, especially at the rate that it's going and how it is actually predicted to knock the United States off of the top spot of the world stage. Um, but it's pretty obvious fear-mongering when you're saying that it's more aggressive and more powerful than the Soviet Union. Um, this is just that kind of language where Noam Chomsky would probably highlight the manufacturing of consent going on here, trying to build the idea that we have to fight China in order to hold our American values in their truest, uh, purest and authentic form. Uh, but it's it's truly fear mongering and trying to make an enemy out of f fellow human beings. Now, I don't like a lot of China's policies or, you know, uh, I don't really like China in, in, in its political regards. But the, the unfortunate thing here is, is that when we see this kind of manufacturing and consent with like the Soviet Union, there was a red scare that was built upon that that allowed the government to persecute anybody who had socialist beliefs, communist beliefs, anarchist beliefs, and they would be deported or they would be ostracized in the first ever uh, act of cancel culture where they would uh, find actors and directors, screenwriters, people within the private sector who held communist beliefs they would lose their job possibly face deportation um, that's the kind of rhetoric that can lead 
uh, this right here is this kind of talking points that can lead to Americans uh, vilifying and, you know, uh, even attacking other fellow American citizens, either because of their race or because of their ideologies. So this is very dangerous stuff. And uh, again, zero points out of 10, but please continue. Vance, it's authoritarian vision. The country's rulers are determined to control or eliminate anyone who stands in their way. This explains why China's communist rulers ethnically cleanse their minorities. They have forced at least a million Muslim Uyghurs into concentration camps. It's why they impose a surveillance state on their own citizens. Why they have moved to strip freedom from Hong Kong. All valid criticisms, but you still have to wonder also too, is it worth demonizing China that much when the United States really isn't that far off? Now, our surveillance uh, capabilities aren't as you know expansive and vast as China's. China's on another level of uh, surveilling its uh, citizens, but we are all familiar with the Patriot Act and how the NSA is basically allowed to uh, you know uh, mine data on all of its citizens. So you know there's a bit of level of surveillance going on in the United States, and it's also to a point where not a lot of Americans really like the Patriot Act. Um, you know, the Uyghurs thing, that is, that, that is truly terrible, and we need to do the proper things that we need to do to ensure the, their decency and uh, their dignity and to make sure that they come out okay. There's there's really no reason why the world should be sitting by while this is happening. Um, but the United States also has its own uh, problem of persecuting those who have cultural differences. And I'm, of course, speaking about the immigrants and refugees who are being forced to be detained in uh, truly terrible conditions. And it's been going on for a very long time. We're constantly putting refugees and immigrants through uh, a, a pretty horrifying experience when they're trying to come into this country, either seeking for refuge or better opportunities. So on that front, we're also not the best um, we're not great at it. Uh, and also, too, you know, we have evidence upon evidence of the United States meddling in other countries' affairs, trying to assure that we have the government or the regime that we want in power. So in the same way as Hong Kong, we're not that innocent either. So, you know, you can you can put criticisms on China, but also there has to be a bit of reflection as a as, as a citizen of the United States, a part of your social contract. You cannot see all the flaws within the United States and demonize China. It's not in, it's not consistent. You have to be against both so that both countries can change. And then we don't have to have this kind of cold war rhetoric where you cause more oppression. No, you do. No, you, you fucker. And it just leads us to pointing nuclear armaments at each other, wondering if we're going to have to try and build underground systems so that we don't die of radiation. So, um, yeah. Let's uh, let's 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 have all of our governments do better and not just the ones that we don't like, you know. Why they threatened to take over Taiwan, why China's spies have infiltrated American college campuses and classrooms, why China has stolen intellectual property from our. I think the best example, too, is, is that um, China is very interested in getting a new Dalai Lama. Um, they went so far as to even kidnap the child who would grow up and then later pick uh, the Dalai Lama's uh, replacement. They kidnapped him and then found another child of Chinese descent to take his place. Um, 
you know the 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 Buddhists aren't recognizing this as uh, as the official way of them doing things, but they're kind of hoping that the Dalai Lama dies out and then they can move forward with their agenda after that. But I also had seen news that not only is China interested in this, so is the United States. Now, uh, you know, a conservative may want to be like, well, it's in order to stop China. And, uh, you know, that's giving the government way too much benefit of a doubt as if like our national interests stop at, you know, the buck stops at stopping China. That's not how that's not where our national interests go. We're we're just as concerned of having uh, power and influence in every other country just as much as China. So, again, I just I. It's okay to criti criticize China, but you cannot say that it is factually worse than the United States. You can say in certain areas, but then maybe in some other areas, they're a lot more proficient than we are. So, um, and I haven't pointed out any examples of what China's more proficient at uh, than, than we are beyond the fact that their economy is growing much faster than ours and they're uh, moving up the economic ladder much quicker. While the United the States is on a decline. Companies and why they seek to dominate the United Nations and international agencies like the World Health Organization. Now imagine when we were like coming into the United Nations and how big of a role we've played in it if Chinese propaganda, like the news cycles in China were saying the United States is trying to take over the United Nations. It's the same thing. It's the same thing with the World Health Organization. But you know what really helped them get even further in these organizations was Donald Trump, who refused to work with our allies inside the UN, who wanted to, you know, effectively even try to like ruin our relationships in the UN. And he went as to far went as far as to try and pull us out of the World Health Organization, which, you know, Biden has to now basically reverse entirely because by the time Biden became president, we were supposed to be fully removed from the World Health Organization. So if there was anybody who ruined the United States positions in these globalized organizations, it was the United States itself after we had elected Donald J. Trump. The simple fact is that communist China China will not stop. This is why America must... And that's why we have to make them stop with American democracy. ...respond and lead. That starts with American resolve. It, 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 you can't see the video right now because I haven't got my computer fixed with a stronger G CPU, but, like, they had an American flag just, like, come up behind China and just, like, wreck it. Just, like, wrecked it from behind and destroyed it. Amazing. To stand up to China, we need to stand up for our principles. While China Again, we're not living to the ideals of our principles, so using this as the crutch of the argument is fake and superficial. We know that it's more of having a concern of having world domination. That's the bigger concern here then. And that was the same kind of concern with the Soviet Union. It wasn't about them destroying our values. It was about them having too much, uh, too many allies around the world that we would have a much weaker position in trade and foreign policies in general. So this is what we're competing for now is we're basically going to compete with the biggest uh, economy on the planet for clout. That's that's what we're competing for. That's what we're doing. Like, like why, are, why are we pretending that it's about our principles when it's just solely about clout like just be real china has abused the free market to its own advantage america must defend the integrity of the free market the only pathway to economic what do you mean the free market around the globe or the free market like in the united states what do you mean protect the free market like you 
again, like that's also like the equivalency of like capitalism is necessary to protect the American traditions. And if you tear down capitalism, you tear down America. It's the whole idea that if we don't have a free market, we aren't really free. You know, even though like feudalism had free markets, you know, even though monarchies had free markets. So, you know, what are we what are we talking about here? Come on. Economic prosperity. We must ensure that our trade relationship is fair and that China isn't using the rules to its advantage. We the only reason why China would use the rules to its advantage is if we come up with a trade deal that benefits them more than us. And it might happen because they actually have advantages depending on what we're seeking. So to name any deal inherently unfair, if any leadership is willing to sign us up to an unfair deal, that is the fault of the leadership. But it's really hard to gauge that because most of the time you're going to hear that it's a fake trade deal depending on what side of the aisle you sit on. So must ensure that our most important security-related industries, from essential medicine to semiconductors, have American-friendly supply chains instead of depending on an authoritarian rival state. We must- That's never gonna happen. Honestly, like, we're, we're never gonna bring our manufacturing jobs here. There's probably some industries that we're not going to, um, you know, export to the rest of the world for cheaper labor, but there's definitely plenty that we're gonna eventually have either in China or it's gonna be all automated here. Um, the thing is that really like hurts me about this is that the, f the free flow of information is what really like makes human beings a lot stronger, especially in cooperative circumstances. And as a perfect example, without China isolating the, the, the protein RNA for the coronavirus, a lot less uh, or a lot of countries would have developed their vaccines a lot slower. Now, you can say China did some espionage shady shit if you want, but those that that RNA scan of the protein molecules from the, the virus were very essential to all of the vaccines that we see happening globally. So the free flow of information actually benefits human beings. And what she's talking about here is that we keep it all to ourselves in order to compete with China, which is a horrible position to take as we're coming on close to climate change, devastating large parts of the, the the planet where we as human beings might actually have to cooperate with each other i mean would you are, are you surprised by that but the thing is though is that at the current state of how we do foreign policy and how we see other nations you know we're just going to end up fighting over resources we're, we're just going to end up having wars for water you know and uh wars for land that allows you to uh crop so that there's food for your people um so you know the that whole thing when we could take a more cooperative stance to ensure that we uh reduce as much human suffrage as we can it's unfortunately probably going to be exacerbated because our countries are so nationalistic to an extent that they're willing to sacrifice their citizenry just to better another nation so that's uh cool beans us also end China's intrusion into American business. That means limiting Chinese investment in critical parts of our economy. And of course, we must support the Chinese people's right to live free. It's the right thing to do and the smart thing to do. Make no mistake, China's belligerence is not America's challenge alone. Free countries must unite to face it. Like, honestly, I can hear this, like, exact kind of language if you switch the nations around. Like, America's belligerence, 
uh, cannot be stopped alone. Like if China was going to make a propaganda to get people to want to antagonize the United States, you could use a PragerU video and replace every time they say China with the United States and then change the circumstances slightly from Uyghur Muslims to South American refugees. Like it really wouldn't be that hard. This is basically just a template for manufactured consent. In the Pacific region, Japan, India, and Australia recognize the Chinese danger. Oh, see, and that's funny to me that, you know, she's saying that we have to stand up to the authoritarian China, and she highlights India as one of our allies in this, and India is a far-right dictatorship. Like, that is not an ally we should be necessarily proud of right now. Our European friends have been slower to the cause. But Chinese duplicity on the coronavirus is waking them up, too. Our allies and partners should know that America always has their back, just as we expect them to have ours. Imagine if, like, you know, if China was talking about America's duplicity with the swine flu. Like, it's honestly the same logic there. To blame China for the coronavirus outbreak would to be blaming the United States for the swine flu outbreak. Like, it's a pandemic. It happens because of our agricultural and farming methods most of the time. Um, so let's, uh, like, just more fear-mongering, more demonizing, more vilifying, just so that you can feel uh, less concerned when we start bombing people who look Chinese. Like, cool. This, is, this isn't going to contribute to an increase in Asian hate crimes at all. Not at all. National security is the foundation of economic security, and economic security is the foundation of national security. Both are threatened by Chinese communist aggression. Both can only be protected by American strength and ingenuity. I like how she's like proposing that we do things economically to stifle China, and that's not aggressive. That's us doing aggressive things in protection of ourselves. You know, the best, uh, best defense is a good offense. That's, that's the American way, baby. Standing up to Chinese communism will ensure that America has a safer, stronger, and more prosperous future. And there's the Red Scare rhetoric right there. Perfect. Opposing Chinese communism. It's almost like we were living in the Soviet or in, in Nazi Germany saying, let's oppose Judeo-Bolshevism. Like it's, 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 it's right there. It's literally right there. The idea that, you know, communism, Bolshevism was a, uh, a stem from the evil Jew coming in to destroy the Germany you know and love. Chinese communism is not that different, especially since we've already been seeing an increase of Asian hate crimes in the United States since the COVID pandemic. So cool, guys. Really cool. Like, I can't wait till we have night like World War II styled in camp. It like it, it, you know camps just like we did for the Japanese citizenry and everybody just arguing why it's important for us to protect ourselves from the communists like this is a wonderful direction that we're heading towards with absolutely no historical context from us to learn from I'm being sarcastic of course there's plenty of historical context for everything that this video contained that's what this is all about and that's why we must never lose sight of the Chinese communist threat Let's get to work. Never lose sight of the Chinese communist threat. Like that's just the this this is 1920s America right here. This is just 1920s America and 1930s Germany.
you know, I, I, I'm really hoping that we can avert another Red Scare because it was so devastating during the McCarthy era. I mean, it was terrible during Woodrow Wilson, but like if we can avoid other human beings uh, or I guess American citizens attacking other uh, American uh, citizens for their First Amendment, which is to express themselves, which, you know, can come in the forms of ideology or religions, um, you know, we're, we're going in a dark path here. This is a very dark path to think that Americans have to stand up not against China, but against the Chinese communist threat. It's such a vague abstraction that when somebody comes off as a, a, a communist to these reactionaries, that person's life is then in danger. Um, so cool, Nikki. Um, you're just staying very uh, consistent with the right wing. Uh, wonderful. Next from PragerU is... A little analysis, five minutes and five seconds of critical race theory. Let's begin. Have you heard about critical race theory? I'm guessing you probably have. It has already insinuated itself into many. Our speaker is James Lindsay. He is the founder of New Discourses. Institutions and is making rapid progress into others. If it takes hold, it will completely change the very nature of America and the way you live. Critical. Hmm. So what, when he said that, it like there was a flag over the the continent, or I guess the United States, the country, and then it when he said that it would get our beliefs backwards, it, the the flag flipped upside down by by basically accepting critical race theory. Um, then you know everything America has been about is just flipped on its head. Which is funny because if you are actually familiar with critical race theory, um, you know, if America gets flipped on its head because you use critical race theory, then that kind of proves the point of having critical race theory to examine the laws on whether or not they're uh, affecting people based on their skin color. Race theory holds that the most important thing about you is your race. The color. Yes, that's that's why it's called race theory it's yes it is about your race it is it is one tool to examine hierarchy and domination just one and the thing is though is that the conservative party is also uh totally turned off by the word intersectionality so even if you try to talk about the convergence of min multiple forms of dominance and hierarchy and exploitation it doesn't exist so even if you try to use critical race theory on 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 top of the you know labor theory of value well then you're getting into intersectionality and that's just marcus marxist mumbo jumbo which they already got from the labor theory but um, you know, it's just one tool of analyzing uh, coercive dominance or just hierarchical dominance or the way uh, oppression is highlighted either in the law or through practices other throughout the, the rest of our society. Uh, it's just one tool of examining uh, domination. Just one. Of your skin, that's who you are. Not your behavior, not your values, not your environment, your race. In critical race theory, if you are a member of a minoritized racial group, their term, not mine, you are a victim of a system that is rigged against you. A what do you mean? Like, the word minorities has been around for forever. Like, are you kidding me? You, the, the people who came up with critical... Oh, oh, God. ...system that doesn't want you to succeed. On the other hand, if your race is privileged, you're an exploiter, whether you intend to be or not. Critical race theory begins from the assumption that racism occurs in all interactions. To see how this works, consider this thought experiment. 
Imagine you own a shop and two cups. You do see like the 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 harm in somebody who doesn't like critical race theory to come up with an example for you to understand critical race theory, right? You can see how that might be a problem. So um, because if they don't like it, I don't think they actually understand it. And if they un don't really understand it, I don't think that they're going to be very great at explaining it. Customers enter at the same time, one white and one black. Who do you help first? If you help the black person first, critical race theory would say you did so because you don't trust black people to be left alone in your store. Nope. Nope. That's just implicit bias. That's not that's not critical race theory examining the situation to see if there's a racial issue going on here. A, a purposeful uh, intent behind actually discriminating against somebody based on the color of their skin. The better example is the war on drugs. The war on drugs initially started by Richard Nixon was to target anti-war hippies who smoked grass and also who also smoked grass was the black community. So it was really two birds, one stone for Richard Nixon. And so you can look at how after that law came into effect, the incarceration rate for black people went. You use critical race theory to see if it was perpetuated on the fact that it was because of their race. Uh... And that's why it's important to have critical race theory, because the language these days, since racists aren't really allowed to be that open with it, you don't you, you can't really outright say that it was targeted at black people. You just you, you look at what their you know behaviors would be and then you make that behavior illegal. Another example is the after the war on drugs, they came up with uh, a crime bill in the 90s that really threw in harsh penalties which again seemed to uh, you know affect black people more than it did anybody else who were already getting incarcerated at higher rates than white people. So when we look at the criminal justice system, we use critical race theory to see which parts of it may have been used to disenfranchise black people. It's not about who walks into the store and who do you help first. That's ridiculous. It is, this is a dumb example, and it's 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 really shallow, and your IQ has to be below um, how high I can count, and it I can't count very high, bro. So like, don't take this in like sincerely whatsoever. Like, critical race theory does not have to be applied to in a lot of personal interactions. You can easily just in, analyze in a personal reaction whether somebody's having a reaction to somebody because of their skin color, whether it's explicit bias or implicit bias. But what he's saying here is that the store owner is going through an impl implicit bias situation of whether or not he's going to help the black person first or second, not of whether or not the policy within the corporation that he works for, whether or not it deems that he must help the black person first or last. That would take critical race theory into consideration and look at whether or not that policy is in fact racist. Holy crap, like we're only a minute in. That's racist. If you help the white person first instead, critical race theory would say you did so because you think blacks are second-class citizens. That's racist too. That's critical race theory. It can find racism in anything, even if it has to read your mind to do it. Critical race theory is a uniquely American invention. Brewed up at Harvard Law School in the 70s, now part of the academic and media mainstream, it is also uniquely un-American. All right, so, <laughs> God, dude. He says it was started up in Harvard, and then he says, and then it became part of academia and mainstream 
theory. It's like you just said it came from Harvard. Like obviously it started in academia. That's now part I'm, of the academic. I'm splitting hairs on that one, but that was a terrible way to structure that sentence. Because like of course the like two of the biggest things besides leftists that conservatives don't trust is academic intellectuals and mainstream media. So of course he had to pair them both together when moving into the next part of this discussion. Academic and media mainstream. It is also uniquely un-American because it rejects the core tenets of the American classically liberal Judeo-Christian value system. Wow. Wow. See, in, 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 even though it says in the Constitution, and I'm going to read it to you because uh, I am that dumb. Um, wait, I think it's up here in Article 1, is it not? Do, 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 do. No, it's not there. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, where was it? Oh, it's Amendment. It's the First Amendment. What am I doing? Not Article 1. Amendment 1. Uh, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. All right, so we haven't done that, but this dude said right here that our core tenets have to do with Judeo-Christian values. No. No. In fact, the First Amendment goes on to say here, uh, they aren't allowed to prohibit the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people to peacefully assemble. The point is, is that you can't prohibit the free exercise thereof. So even though you can say that we were founded on Christian value system, it's just like, yes, yeah, yeah the, the, the uh, you know, not, wait, not even every founding father was a Christian. Yeah, that's just dumb. Like you're, it's it's the same thing that they do when they swear on a Bible. They're just implying that we're a Christian nation, um, in order to have like you know a stronger solidarity among their conservative base. But, um, yeah, no, no. Um, not only does critical race theory not really go against those core tenets uh, inherently, uh, but uh, I I just want to say no. The United States core tenants is not a judeo-christian value system and if it is that then we really need to rewrite our constitution i guess it turns the bedrock american idea upside down here it is in the words of richard delgado and gene stefanchik two leading proponents critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order including equality theory legal reasoning enlightenment rationalism and the neutral principles of constitutional law. And you you know why that would be, right? Because even though a lot of our founding fathers would be called what what would be called liberals back in the day, uh they had slaves. Uh slave trading went on for another 100 years after this country was founded. So you you understand why critical race theory would bring up questions to the very foundations of the liberal order that we've been founded upon when the liberals at the beginning of this owned human beings that's why you would want to put the equality theory into question and the legal reasoning and at the time their enlightenment of rationality you would want to put that all into question for the entire globe if you were so enlightened in rationality if you had such legal reasoning if you were focused on equality theory and having order in a liberalist society why did you own slaves if those things were so important to you why did you subjugate certain people to certain roles based off the color of their skin i feel like that is a pretty valid fucking question to bring up
It does this because critical race theory proponents assume racism is present everywhere and always, and they look for it critically until they find it. And they always find it. It has to be there because that's how the imperial European powers and then America set things up. I like how he like found a way like they they can find it anywhere and they'll they'll find it if they think critically hard enough. And it's like, isn't critical thinking like supposed to be good? Isn't isn't that like supposed to help an individual empower themselves by thinking critically, thus thinking for themselves? I, I like in somehow now in this term, critical thinking has taken on a negative uh, connotation like that's very weird. Here, as in all dangerous academic theories, there is a kernel of truth. Human beings were not preoccupied with dangerous academic theories. Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess. All right. But dangerous to what? Race until the 16th century when Europeans began to explore and then colonize. Oh, my God. As if race was like first noticed in the 16th century. Get out of here. No, that is that is ridiculous. There is well beyond that. Well, beyond the 16th century, did people recognize that people coming from different places of the globe had different characteristics? Oh, my God. Parts of the like, world. even the Bible acknowledges those things. Like, come on, dude. Drawing distinctions between the races reached its peak in the 19th century with the widespread use of slave labor in North and South America. No one denies this. But since then, the Western world, and most especially America, has spent a lot of time, money, and blood breaking free of its racist past yeah every, every like a ton of countries did i i want to know though and this is because i don't know so i'm gonna have to do some autonomous research and development on this what i want to know is how many countries like freed their slaves without having to kill each other i'm i'm genuinely curious like who actually abolished slaves without having to shed a single civilian's blood i'm gonna i'm gonna look that up later it's been a rocky road for sure but, uh, but also too, like the Western world wasn't the fir like the first one to free slaves, and they weren't even like the only ones. That's so weird. It's like when they try to take credit for like Western civilization being the advancement of societies around the globe, as if like other societies had no contributions to Western civilization. Whatever. It's white supremacist talk. Like it's so weird how he uses a white supremacist uh, like dog whistle to say we freed the slaves because Western civilization is always so enlightened. Great progress has been made. Critical race theory says all this progress is a mirage. Racism never died, never even faded a little bit. It just hid itself better. True. Critical race. I, I would say though, it you know, racism has declined in this country over decades and decades of both cultural and legislative changes. But you know, you can still see racism happening today if you guess what, look critically enough. Race theory, therefore, is not a continuation of the civil rights movement. It is, in fact, a repudiation of it. Nope. Nope. And th that's the funny thing, though, is that even after the, um, the civil rights movement of the 1960s, you can still uh, see uh, laws that worked against black people, whether it was redlining, gerrymandering, policing. There's many other ones. So, like... To say that it's 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 in refutation of the civil rights movement. No, it's actually making sure after the civil rights movement that this com this country is accountable to the promises that it made to our African Americans brothers and sisters. So that's like no, it's not a refutation of it. It's an insurance policy. To critical race theorists, Martin Luther King was both wrong and naive. 
white oh my god what (laughs) what what (laughs) he used critical race theory to call out the system for being racist even though uh you know slavery was abolished and you know some jim crow had been pulled back like martin luther king for sure used critical race theory to analyze discrimination in the law like are you kidding me that was his whole movement Americans can never judge blacks by the content of their character. They can only judge them, always unfavorably, consciously, or unconsciously, by the color of their skin. And they always stop the quote there. I'm not going to finish the quote, but there's more to that quote than they're putting on, and they always use it. I'm not going to get into it anymore. I'm tired of hearing this quote every single time. Like, the conservatives adopting Martin Luther King, who, if he was alive today, they would have called him a rioter and an Antifa soldier. Like, I'm not... No, no, they didn't like him back then. And I think it's like honestly despicable that conservatives keep quoting him after he's dead. Ironically, not since the Aryan obsession in Germany in the 1930s and 1940s or South African apartheid in the second half of the 20th century has the social movement been so obsessed with race. Critical race theory is then in a very real sense, a counter American revolution. But that's a positive not a negative to those who subscribe to the theory. The American experiment was given a 400-year tryout, and it doesn't... I want to highlight, too, here how, like, uh, you know, South Africa, there's there hasn't been as big of, like, uh, racial issues since, like, the late 20th century South Africa, 1930s Germany, just completely ignoring the apartheid going on in Israel. But of course they are, because this is PragerU, and PragerU is entirely pro-Israel, even if that means pretending that Palestinians don't exist. Um, Let's not talk about Morocco, or really any African country, because then we might have to highlight how there's genocides and race wars going on there. Um, Yeah, you you can pretty much find any um, country on a map, and I'm sure you'll find just a little bit of racism in them. Just a little bit work so let's like the fact too that like not even that long ago i'm pretty sure it was the 1900s the united kingdom was like massively oppressing ireland like in ireland had full-on revolutions and that was white on white race wars you know so ridiculous claims crap it that's what they believe is that what you believe i'm going to guess that most of you don't So how do we stop critical race theory before it infects the brains of too many decent Americans, especially young people, and turns us into something (laughs) we have never been and shouldn't ever want to be? The answer is simple. Refuse to accept it. Is he saying that this country has never been racist? (laughs) Really? (laughs) Okay. I didn't think that was a claim you could back up. Don't be intimidated by the heads-I-win, tails-you-lose logic of this self-destructive, America-hating, anti-reality idea. That's like the whole thing of America, though, is that normally when you win, there's a loser. Like, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk sit on piles of losers. Like, they're standing on piles of losers who lose in comparison to Jeff Bezos. You can say, oh, he pays them wages, and so in that way they're winning. But honestly, what's $15 an hour to the millions he earns in that same hour? Don't be bullied into thinking that you're racist when you know you're not, or that you're a victim when you know you're not. Defend yourself while you still can. I'm James Lindsay. And again, more fear-mongering language there. Defend yourself while you still can. Cool.
Oh, oh God. Thank God. There's only one more segment. There's only one more, and then we're out of this bitch. And that's Ted Cruz telling me on how the Democrats' agenda is to power forever. Oh, God. Oh, this has been so... This has been so toxic. And we've only done, like, two five-minute segments. Uh, All right. Let's do it. To imply that Washington, D.C. has no representation is absolutely false. One of my House Republican colleagues said that D.C. shouldn't be a state because the district doesn't have a landfill. With all the racist trash my colleagues have brought to this debate, I can see why they're worried about having a place to put it. This is not about a balance. Oh, that wasn't even the best quote from that guy. That guy had like an amazing quote in there earlier. It was great. Or this is about more power. There is a basic constitutional unfairness when you deny people the right to vote. Here we are today, pure power grab to give two Democrat senators to District of Columbia. With my friends across the yeah, and so like the whole push for D.C. to become a state is that you know no n- no place should pay taxes without representation, and the the biggest poll that conservatives have had it with this round of arguments against it is that it would give Democrats too much power. They already assume that as soon as uh, D.C. is granted statehood, that it will immediately vote Democrat. What does that honestly say about your? political party if you don't even think that you can represent that place now i understand there's already statistics out there that dc is 70 percent democrat but again that's more of a detriment to republican policy if republicans were more concerned about representing more of america's beliefs and concerns well then they might get more votes they are complaining that this bill would lead to the election of two additional Democratic senators. So what? Well, did you hear some of those words on the House floor? Democrats passed legislation to make Washington, D.C. our 51st state. But not one Republican voted for the bill, which faces an uphill battle in the Senate now. GOP lawmakers call it the left's latest power grab saying Democrats want to expand their ranks by adding two senators from what would surely be a safely liberal state. Texas Senator Ted Cruz joins me now. Senator, I I have to start with some of the incendiary comments that were made there. I mean, racist trash. Where are we going? What does that have to do with the argument? Well, un- unfortunately, that is now the go-to attack for Democrats, that, that, <laughs> that they excuse anyone who disagrees with them on any issue of being a racist. <laughs> All right, so they're obviously taking that out of context. I even said that that wasn't the best part of that clip. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. I thought I had saved it. Let me see. Because um, there is context to him saying that what the conservatives were saying was racist. Give me a second. Uh, I thought I'd saved it. Nope, 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 not that one, 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 Wyoming is smaller than Washington by population, but it has three times as many workers in mining, logging, and construction, and ten times as many workers in manufacturing. 
In other words, Wyoming is a well-rounded, working-class state. One Senate Republican said that D.C. wouldn't be a, quote, well-rounded, working-class state. I had no idea there was so many. Oh, it's buffering. Oh, man. I had no idea there was so many. Oh, wow. It just stops, like, right there. That's a bummer. Can I replay it one more time? Yes. Wyoming is smaller than Washington by population, but it has three times as many workers in mining, logging, and construction, and ten times as many workers in manufacturing. In other words, Wyoming is a well-rounded, working-class state. One Senate Republican said that D.C. wouldn't be a, quote, well-rounded, working-class state. I had no idea there was so many. All right. Well, he usually he, he's supposed to. I don't know why it stops right there. That is a weird video buffer. But he says, I didn't know there were so many syllables to uh, uh, to white. Um, he was highlighting that he's uh, making disparaging comments about the population because the D.C. population has a lot of black people in it. And that's where the racist term came in. Uh, so it, it wasn't just out of nowhere. It, it actually did have some context, which Ted Cruz is willfully ignoring. And, and they use language that just is incendiary. It's inflammatory. And, and they're deliberately playing on, on racial divisions in our country. They do it on issue after issue after issue. It, it, it's, it's their, you know, people talk about playing the race card. It's the only card they have in their deck. And so that's their standard attack. And, and D.C. statehood, their push here is part of a broader effort. We have democratic control of the White Houses and both houses of Congress, and their number one priority- For like two years. It's not COVID, it's not vaccinations, it's not reopening jobs, it's not getting kids back- in Actually, it's like a year and a half. Sorry, let me, let me go back to Ted Cruz's point. It's not COVID, it's not vaccinations, it's not reopening jobs, it's not getting kids back in school, it's not doing anything substantive. Their number- was he not there when they voted on the coronavirus bill? Like, wh what? <laughs> Was he not there when they introduced the infrastructure bill? Like, even though, like, both of these things are not in the ideals that I would want them, but he's pretending like the Congress hasn't done anything but focus on this statehood uh, ratification when that is literally not the case, and he should know that being a senator. <laughs> one priority is they want to stay in power and i also like that his substantive stuff is like is like getting kids back to school which is just like cool because like donald trump like offered nothing as far as like you know precautions or like uh preparation to get kids back to school safely um so you know you know it's you know damned if you're a democrat uh not damned if you're a republican forever so you look at what they're pushing they're pushing D.C. statehood. Why? Because they want two new Democratic senators. They're pushing H.R. 1, what many are calling the Corrupt Politicians Act, because they want to federalize elections. They want to register millions of illegal... Uh, mischaracterization. Uh, there's no federalizing of elections, whatever the fuck that means. Um, the, 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 the voting bill that uh, Congress is trying to pass, which I think is called the For the People Act, um... It mainly like focuses on federal election reforms. And so all of the things introduced in that bill only apply to federal elections. Not that it will federalize your state elections or even your county elections. That was a weird conflation for him to make, and he gets zero points. 
illegal aliens and felons to vote and keep Democrats in. Yeah, it does allow uh, felons to vote after they've uh, finished their sentence. Um, not sure about illegal aliens because that term is very loose along conservatives. Uh, you could be an illegal alien with a work visa and they'll still call you that. Um, the thing is, is that I, too, believe that felons should be able to vote. And I honestly don't care if they're still in jail in order to do so. Um, I don't think a felon in jail is going to be able to move our democracy as much as the conservatives seem to be concerned about. Um, it's it's literally just trying. The, the only reason why felons aren't allowed to vote is to make them feel less a part of our society, which I don't think is the right approach to go if we're truly invested in rehabilitating former felons. And I think a great way to make them feel as one with our society as we possibly can say if they are if they are in fact rehabilitated is to participate in our democratic process but again i wouldn't have taken it away if they had become a felon in the first place because honestly that is the lowest amount of privilege they could honestly lose when they're going to jail so um yeah power for the next hundred years and they want to pack the U.S. And that's just an exaggeration. They want to be in power for the next hundred years. Like that's just fear mongering. I don't. I, there's. I don't have to come with a logical reason to tell you why that's fear mongering. Republicans and Democrats have been exchanging power for over 160 years. Neither of them are going anywhere. Supreme Court and add four new left-wing justices because they want to change the rules and maintain power. That's their priority. And, 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 and it's not what, what they should be doing. Yeah, uh, with the Supreme Court, I, um, I don't care. I would, you know, since we're working on a duopoly in this country, I would be more comfortable with half conservative, half Democrat, and one independent. That seems to be the most fair system to me, is to have the independent be the likelier of the tiebreaker votes. Um, so I don't inherently, um, move against, uh, you know, packing the courts as they call it. But the only reason why, uh, Ted Cruz is bringing this up now is because the conservatives have a majority in the Supreme court. And if we were to pack the courts, Biden would then have those nominees to pick and they would no longer have that majority. So again, he too is concerned about being in power. You know, uh, in case the public did not know or did not recognize with the mask on, uh, Representative Mondrian Jones is also the person who was there for the rollout of uh, packing the court outside the Supreme Court about a week or so ago. Um, those remarks are getting a lot of heat today. And so I'm curious, when it makes its way to the Senate, what really happens in terms of the rhetoric here? Well, in terms and just to highlight that clip that I played earlier of the one senator saying that D.C. has a well-rounded population and the other senator saying, hey, that's racist. I went to see what the percentage of uh, D.C. is black, what, pop what, what percentage of the population is, and it's nearly half. So uh, there is a little bit of vid validity going on in that in that accusation of racism a little bit. And so. In terms of the substance, the chances of D.C. statehood or packing the court passing into law are zero if, and this is a big if, if the Senate filibuster rules remain the case. If it is the case that it takes 60 votes to move forward, which has been the case in, in, in the Senate for a long, long time, then both of those are dead on arrival. The, de the Democrats know that. That's why they want to change, blow up the Senate rules in the filibuster. 
in order uh, to change the fundamental election rules. And so it all comes down to really. I mean, they've, the Democrats want to end the filibuster uh, to do a lot of things. Uh, Ted Cruz stood up for like hours upon hours to filibust uh, the Affordable Care Act. And at one point, for some reason, he was allowed to read Green Eggs and Ham and went viral for that. Um, and I'm not really sure what relevancy Green Eggs and Ham had to the discussion, but he was allowed to do it and he forestalled uh, the voting that could have happened on that legislation. Filibustering has basically become a legislative wall where if Republicans want a bill killed, they will use the filibuster to talk as long as they can to kill the bill. So in our current form, the filibuster doesn't actually seem too productive. Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, two Democrats, the lone two Democrats who have said they wouldn't end the filibuster. If they end the filibuster, they will make D.C. a state. If they end the filibuster, they will pack wow. the Supreme Court. This is all about power. That's why there's so much pressure on those two Democratic senators. And again, if Republicans could win more votes, they would have more power. It's just, it's, God. Uh. Got it. And, and I had started this with, it's a two-pronged power grab. You've got the D.C. statehood and the filibuster. There could be more. We'll cover it when it happens. Meanwhile, Twitter won't say whether the controversial post by superstar in the NBA, LeBron James, violated its policies. In the tweet, he later deleted... Yeah, which is, like, pointless now um, because he deleted the post, and normally uh, Twitter will suspend your account until you get rid of the material that it says that you should be getting rid of. He did that before he had to actually be told to do that by Twitter. So this is this is weird. And it's a very odd pivot. I don't know what LeBron James has to do with the Democrats agenda being power forever. Oh, no. Deleted. LeBron go. James posted a photograph, the only one we'd seen of the police officer at the scene of Micaiah Bryant shooting, who shot her, with the caption, you're next, hashtag accountability. In a statement, Twitter says, our teams do not evaluate deleted tweets as, as they are no longer on service, rendering it impossible. Full disclosure, saw it, saw it real time, got it on my phone. Like, you know that tweet is everywhere, you can Google it. What are yeah. they talking about? Well, I, I just told you, there's no reason to reprimand somebody for a post if they have already deleted it. Let me start, actually, by, by commending LeBron James for deleting the tweet. He shouldn't have sent it. I think it was grossly irresponsible to send it, but I'm glad he did delete it. Because, look, you opened this, this segment by talking about the, the racial divisions in our country. They're real. They're, they're, they're raw, and there's hundreds of years of history behind those tensions mm -hmm. and, and and when you have which is weird because conservatives are constantly arguing that this country is not racist and has never been racist and yet here we are a conservative acknowledging there has been race tensions in this country for hundreds of years weird an officer involved shooting i think everyone has an obligation to tamp down the rhetoric to not just immediately throw sticks of dynamite into the burning flame uh, in, in the instance in Ohio on which, which LeBron James was co commenting, we've now seen the officer body cam where, where, where the woman who was shot was, was wielding a knife, was obviously violent, was, was threatening the life of another young lady. 
And, and the officer in that instance may well have saved that other young lady's life, stopped her from being stabbed. Now, we don't know. There needs to be an investigation. Anytime there is an officer-involved yes. shooting, there is an investigation, and that's right. But, but LeBron James has something like 50 million followers on Twitter. When, when he targets this police officer, you know, some might read that tweet as an invitation for violence against that officer. Everyone reads that. Yeah, yeah. When you see hashtag accountability, that's him saying that we need to uh, physically harm this police officer. Like, I get it. Um, you know, um, LeBron James acknowledges that he shouldn't have put out that tweet. Um, but I think it was in the heat of the moment. Uh, maybe LeBron James didn't have all the information uh, going on. Um, but to say right after, like, it happened. The killing sh happened right as Derek Chauvin was being found guilty. He wanted to, uh, you know, say, now that we've gotten Derek, you're next in accountability, hashtag accountability, but they're somehow equating this to like him getting a death note or receiving a, a, a death threat. And it's, I, I just hate how much conservatives have to exaggerate and conflate things in order to get their point across. It's, um, it's a uh, weak shit. That tweet as an invitation for this officer to be demonized. And, and that's the wrong approach. It's the approach the left takes systematically. Whenever anything happens, the police officer is always in the wrong. And, and the vast majority of law enforcement officers are good. Yeah, but the problem is, is that for conservatives, the police are always in the right. The conservative system would continue allowing 98% of cops who show excessive force uh, to just, you know, not even go to trial. So that, that, that's been the conservative way of going about things for quite a while now. I'm not sure who introduced qualified immunity, but I'm sure conservatives want to protect it because most of their voting base is actually uh police and police unions <sighs> so uh and I, like i've said in in regards to micaiah bryant's uh killing is that um you know she did threaten the life of another individual so lethal force by law or by policy is justified the unfortunate thing is, is though as i always have to question of whether or not a cop should always find their gun as the first and only solution because when you watch that video, as the fight breaks out, even before she really goes to stab somebody, he pulls his gun out immediately. That was his first tool of choice. And so I have to wonder, did he need to do that? Did he? So, um, yeah. And I, 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 I know that, you know, uh, rubber bullets can't kill somebody. Or, well, they can at the, you know, if they hit somebody in the wrong way or something like that. But I find it very fascinating that, you know, it's something that we'll use willing, willingly on protesters to get them to knock off their behavior. But uh, we won't use it in the streets to disarm or de-escalate a situation. It's a non-lethal way of shooting bullets at people, or at least a less lethal way. Um, but it's only something that we use on protesters and never in actual street applications, which I find very interesting. Good, honorable, they're risking their lives to keep us safe. Are there bad apples? Sure. And, and the Cho Chauvin verdict this week, that verdict was the system working, was a jury of his peers convicting him for violating the law because what happened to George Floyd was... So then we can assume that the system is only working at a 2% capacity level of, the, of, of the, the many cases of excessive force by police. Derek Chauvin goes into the 2% category of cops who face accountability. So the system's working 
isn't the best way to highlight this when there are many more cops who may or may not have to face accountability. And in that, that regard, check out my last episode where I go over Isaiah Brown's case and Marvin Scott III, who have gone uh, a lot more under the radar than Micaiah Bryant, uh, Dante Wright, and Adam Toledo. It was horrific and wrong, and the system worked. But, but what LeBron James was doing was not looking to the facts or the system. My, my, my thing is, too, is what's funny to me is that here a conservative Ted Cruz says the system worked. But then if you watch other uh, conservative pundits talk about the Derek Chauvin trial is that they wonder how much of the media persuaded the jury. So then the system didn't work. The jury was swayed. It's a flaw in the system then, isn't it? Or... Um, they were afraid that the rioters would burn down Minneapolis if they didn't come to a guilty verdict. So again, the jury was swayed. The system did not work. But yet, here, in this circumstance, for this specific talking point, yes, it did. And what was instead unfairly targeting one individual officer for what may well have been saving the life of somebody else. I'll see if lawmakers on the Hill are going to relook at that Section 230 that, that protects some of these tech giants on social media. Uh, it, it didn't go anywhere last well, and, time. And Twitter is, is utterly arbitrary in how it handles this. Yeah, yeah Twitter obviously. and big tech, they're utterly arbitrary in how they handle this. They, they're, and and that's really the whole point of it is, is they have the power. They're the black box. I yes. mean, you remember right before the election... They took down the Twitter feed of the New York Post, the, the newspaper with the fourth largest uh, distribution in America. Why? Because they ran an article about Hunter Biden's laptop. That was true. That We now know it was a true and accurate article. And yet Twitter says we have the power to shut down the press if we don't like what you're saying. It's What's magnificent, too, about the Hunter Biden uh, laptop thing is like literally nobody cares except for conservatives because they can't find enough dirt like personal dirt on joe biden that they continually attack his son who struggles on like many other different levels um uh, hold on uh new york post removed by twitter i do remember that happening i don't remember uh what exactly had happened um, Jack Dorsey says the New York Post Twitter account will remain locked until it deletes the original tweet featuring its Hunter Biden story. Uh, oh, look, Texas Senator Ted Cruz accused Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey of censorship for locking the New York Post out of its account for two weeks. The New York Post on October 14th published an article on Hunter Biden that has several red flags pertaining to the sourcing. Dorsey said the story violated Twitter's terms of service for distributing hacked materials. Cruz questioned Dorsey on Twitter's handling of the story during a Senate committee hearing on Section 230, the law which states tech companies cannot be held liable for content published on their platforms. Twitter has previously locked prominent figures out of their Twitter accounts until they have deleted tweets that violate Twitter's terms of service, which, if you recall, uh, New York Post held out as long as it could. Um, even if there was a validity in some of the information coming from Hunter Biden's uh, laptop, a lot of the sources and a lot of the narrative building around it uh, seem to have uh, a lot of the signs of, you know, misinformation, manipulation, and even just a bit of distraction from actually talking about the true um, things that affect Americans. By focusing on Hunter Biden, you don't have to talk about education, jobs, infrastructure, immigration, uh, foreign policy, any of that. You can just say, oh, don't vote for Joe because his son is addicted to crack. Um, 
and I really feel bad for Hunter Biden. I don't feel bad for a lot of privileged people, but um, his life has been dragged through a gruesome mud just because his dad ran for office. <sighs> so, um, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's been Tox News. <laughs> um, follow me on Twitter at ToxinPod, T-O-X-N-P-O-D. Uh, like the video, dislike if you don't, if you're on the podcast where you can find this on any podcast platform, rate, review, subscribe, do, do all of that stuff, share it, um, uh, you know, hit, hit my Twitter up if you got, you know, video recommendations. And, um, other than that, I guess I will see you next time in the, uh, talks news zone. Um, I guess I gotta make sure the music is adjusted right Yet again, another perfect outro. I'll catch you guys next time.